0: You're listening to Just Believe, sponsored by Just Believe Recovery Centers, with your host, Brenda Swift, as she discusses all aspects of addiction, recovery, and sober living. And now, your host of Just Believe, Brenda Swift.
1: Welcome to Just Believe Radio. I am your host, Brenda, and we're here on 900 AM. The Talk of the Palm Beach is Monday through Sunday, every single day for you at 3 o'clock. And we're also on the weekends in Long Island, New York. That's 103.9 FM, L.I. News Radio. We have a very important call in line for anyone that's looking for help for addiction for themselves or a loved one. And that number is 877-309-3635. And that's 877 309 Thirty six thirty five, and that is a confidential line as well. And we are a show about addiction and recovery, and we bring stories to you from people kind enough to take their time out and share their experience, strength, and hope as to how addiction happened in their lives and and how recovery is working for them today. I would, I'm very honored today to have a guest in uh, that calling in from uh, the mountains. That is. Um, got a great deal of experience and and hope to offer. I'd like to welcome to the show, John. Hey, Brenda. Hey, John. Thank you so much for taking time out to uh, share your story with the listeners and hopefully inspire someone to uh, be able to start on the path thats that you've been so blessed to walk. Uh, we did talk a little bit about, uh, we do try to give a little bit of family background so people understand how things happened for us. Did you uh, come from a a home that had alcohol or or drug problems present or any kind of dysfunction?
2: Um, Actually, uh, I'm an adopted child, so I've never really known my my birth parents. Um, But my adoptive parents, uh, they were were really great people. Um, I don't recall them really ever um, uh, drinking too much or doing anything really to excess. Um, My dad was... You know, he would have a, a beer or a beer and a half every day, I could remember, but I never saw him, uh, you know, really have any more than that. And that was pretty much, uh, you know, that's what I saw growing up.
1: Okay, and that, that is uh, where we try to point out is that uh, any ha- any background, any history uh, is susceptible to addiction, and we don't all come from broken homes. And, and it sounds like you had a, a pretty, uh, quote-unquote, normal um Childhood, is that correct?
2: Yeah, it was pretty good. Um I was uh I was an extremely overweight child. Um, you know, by the time I was uh fourteen I weighed about three hundred pounds. And um that left me with I wasn't didn't have a lot of self worth and I was bullied a lot at school. I hated school. Uh, people were People weren't very nice to, to those of us that were overweight then. And, and to be honest, back then, I was like the overweight kid in school. So, you know, that's what I really remember the most of, was, uh, of my childhood it was just, you know, not fitting in and, you know, being upset all the time. I just, yeah, I hated myself and I hated going anywhere.
1: Of course. And drugs and alcohol came into play at what age for you?
2: Um, I'm going to say about uh, 15. I had, uh, my parents uh, were in a joint venture, business venture, with my uncle and aunt, and they left me in charge of my older cousins for a week while they went to a work event. And my cousins were, uh, one was late teen and the other was in his early 20s, and they took me out with them uh, to, to their parties at night and stuff. And I remember um, they took me for a couple of nights, they they partied me up, and uh I remember I was so sick for a few days that I ended up losing about eleven or twelve pounds just in you know just from being sick oh, and I, I I looked at that as being a good start
1: right and, um, new diet plan I,
2: I, and you know they didn't have Jenny Craig back then, but they did have drugs and alcohol, and you know what that was the uh, beginning of the, of the school the school summer that happened, and by the time I went back to school in the fall. I, I weighed about 150 pounds. i lost half of that weight. Oh
1: and uh, you know. So you had so, found a solution to what you were being bullied, uh, as well as the getting rid of the feelings of, of not fitting in and everything that we usually experience, too.
2: Absolutely. And my life took a big turn, right? You know, I was, I was drinking, I was smoking, and I was having a good time, and I looked like everybody else.
1: Ah, so it was a solution. How, how long was it before you realized there was a problem?
2: Um, honestly, I don't think I ever realized that it was a problem. Um, I would get into, you know, over the next 30 years, I would, you know, go from, you know, heroin and crack and and methamphetamines. Um, you know, I always drink. Um, for me, it really was never a problem. I, you know, I got in a couple of scrapes. I'd had a couple of DUIs in the 80s. But, you know, when you're a heavy narcotics user, it's an expensive game. And, you know, a few bucks for lawyer fees here and there is just, you know, that's the price of the party is the way I always looked at it. It's just the price of doing business. Um, It was never, I never saw it as a problem, although everybody else around me did.
1: Okay, so that was your family, basically, that that was aware that, that things were not the way they should be for you?
2: Well, family, and I would have relationships. You know, I have children that, uh, you know, I would have relationships with that I would lose those relationships with because, um, you know, just they couldn't handle that. It was just too much for them. Um, it was not until I was 45 that I really got in trouble. That would that would be the pivotal point for me, I think.
1: And that's, that's a good point because a lot of times we... As long as we're able to manage, as long as we're able to you know, bob and weave and keep things moving in the addiction, we don't really see that there's uh, an issue that we have to change because it's it's working, uh, it seems to be working as far as dealing with the, the emotions that we're trying to stay away from. And then consequences come in. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Just Believe Radio. We're a talk show about addiction and recovery. And I have my guest on the line today, John, who is sharing his, his experience, strength, and hope as to how addiction happened for him and exactly what brought him into recovery. And during that, that span of time, John, um, you said from 15 to 45, were there times, you said that there were just generally no time that you even really tried to stop? Uh, the, the thoughts of there being a problem never really occurred?
2: Um, I can't honestly say I ever really tried to stop. I was a daily, um, narcotics user. Um, I usually was in a relationship with somebody that was like me. Um, and typically we would always have two jobs. You know, we'd have a day job and then we would work in restaurants or, or deliver pizza or something at night, something that would give us, um, like tip money, daily money. And, you know, our MO was we would work and, you know, we would use. And, um... You know, and it, and it really worked for us. Uh, granted, you know, there were a lot of times when, uh, you know, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have water, we had cars repossessed, but, you know, we still had the roof over our head, and we lived under the illusion that, you know, we were labeled to manage, like you were saying. And... um you know, that's how I lived for a long time, and, and I found out early on that as long as I had two jobs, I could always lose one, and uh, believe me, I lost a lot of them, but even just having a part-time job, sometimes you can always float it, you know, until the next job comes up, and and back then, you know, jobs were plentiful, you know, you I, there were many times I lost a couple of jobs in a week, still was able to have another job before the end of the week.
1: Oh, definitely, and certainly within the restaurant industry, and, and there, there was a tremendous amount of of jobs like that and putting us back in that environment i worked in restaurants of course and cocktail waitress and all that for for quite a number of years and we fit right Right. in there uh and also you know keeps you centered in the environment that that feeds the addiction or did for me and partying with people afterwards uh we are actually looking at uh, 45 years old you said that that started to change for you
2: um, I was at age 45. I'm 57 now, but uh, it was age 45 when that all kind of uh, came to the, to an end. I just, I was getting to, my mind was really starting to deteriorate, and I was, you know, getting to the point where I would hallucinate, and it, I was paranoid all the time, and it just, um, you know, it was, it was coming to an end. That's By the time I was 45, it was starting to come to an end. It was unraveling.
1: All right, and what was the uh, primary drug of choice at that point, or just anything that you could get your hands on?
2: Um, well, I would, still, I would still be working two jobs. And it was at that point, I was smoking crack daily. And if I couldn't get crack, it was either heroin or meth. Um, meth was um, pretty easy to get at the time and it was a little cheaper. But as I said, you know, I've been a daily drug user for, for decades. And um, that that's was crack, I would have to say, was probably what I was doing the most of.
1: All right. And did you actually stay in the same part of the country during all of this? Or, or did you travel trying to look for, for new uh, options? Or, or was it uh, a lot of people they talk about, you know, that the things would get burnout in a certain area, you had had not paid enough bills, all of that. So they moved to a different area. Was that part of your experience during that time?
2: No, I, I stayed in Florida the whole time. As a matter of fact, I was always so broke, I was kind of locked, I had locked myself in there. I would have had to have been uh, homeless, actually, to to have drifted, like you're suggesting. And I just, you know, like I said, you know, I was still able to have a job, and I was actually a homeowner. Um, and it was it was kind of a blessing in a way, because my credit was so bad, I was never, never able to refinance my home. But at the same time, I was always able to make the mortgage payment. That was always the number one priority a month because you know, to, once you're, you're homeless, uh, it's a lot harder to, to to be a good drug addict. I mean, it just is. So, Absolutely. But no, I never tra- I Never traveled. I was. I stayed at home. I worked and I stayed at home pretty much.
1: And that's exactly what we get into. Is we can work as hard as we need to in order to to keep a roof over our heads most of the time, but primarily to feed that addiction. Uh, that comes first and foremost. It sounds like that's what you were experiencing.
2: Yeah, that's right. And like I said, I always lived with somebody that was just like me. So between us, we always had at least three or four jobs going, so we were able to maintain that.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break and get into John's uh, story of recovery as soon as we come back.
2: At
0: Just Believe Recovery Center, their highly trained staff has a combined 50 years in recovery and is certified to help with each client's individual needs. The program at Just Believe Recovery Center brings those suffering from addiction and their families the understanding needed to begin healing from the devastation and begin the path to a new and fulfilling life in recovery. The staff understands what addiction has done to your family and that no one chooses to become sick. At Just Believe Recovery Center, with the therapeutic process and a caring staff that understands addiction, their clients can choose to become well. Go to JustBelieveRadio.com for more details. And call their 24-hour hotline today, 877-309-3635. That's 877-309-3635 for caring guidance and an end to the pain of addiction now. Just believe there is another chance. And call 877-309-3635 today. Welcome back to Just Believe, sponsored by Just Believe Recovery Centers. With your host, Brenda Swift. As she discusses all aspects of addiction, recovery, and sober living. Now, back to your host, Brenda Swift.
1: Welcome back to Just Believe Radio. I am your host, Brenda, and we are here on 900 AM, the talk of the Palm Beaches, Monday through Sunday, every day at 3 o'clock for you. We're also on the weekends in Long Island, New York. That's 103.9 FM, uh, LI News Radio. And I'm extremely blessed today to have a guest on the show that is sharing his experience, strength, and hope from uh, the mountains in the United States. You're in, see, John, uh North Carolina? North
2: Carolina,
1: yes. Well, thank you for calling in, and, and I know reception was an issue. We don't seem to be having a problem there. Uh, now, we talked before the break about... Uh, uh, generally uh most of the your lifetime was spent in in continuing the the uh patterns of making sure the drugs were present and and living that lifestyle and and a lot of us i, I you know of course go back to my own story and there were periods that were were that way as well, and that there was a darkness to that uh for me uh, did you feel any of the living a life separate from the rest of the world or or did it just basically stay high enough to not worry about it
2: i stayed high enough to not worry about it that's uh, uh, staying stoned and, and and drunk was my solution to everything you know if i if i had a problem i could get stoned and drunk and i'll be honest with you it uh, the problem went away um, sure i would as i sobered up the problem would resurface but you know i could always use more and that's uh, was pretty much my coping mechanism for all those years was just to get stoned and high
1: Absolutely, and and you said that a, a change started to happen for you at uh, forty five years old. Then, Is, can you tell us a little bit how that happened?
2: Yeah, I was uh, forty five, or well, I might have been forty six. Um, I I was getting um, I was deteriorating mentally pretty bad, like I mentioned before the break. I I was starting to you know be paranoid. I was um, starting to hear things and, and hallucinate. And, uh, one day, for whatever reason uh, that I've never been able to understand, I just, I became convinced that, you know, the world was being taken over by aliens. I did the whole alien thing. And, uh, you know, just like, just like on TV, I did what they did. You know, I went on a mission to, to rid the world of aliens. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, who were these aliens? And my only answer is everyone that isn't me, that wasn't me. And, uh, you know, I went on a, uh, a 48-hour crime sp- spree and trying to rid the world of aliens, and uh, that pretty much was my turnaround.
1: Oh, certainly. And that that's one of the things that uh, I don't think a lot of people understand, is that when, when long-term drug use, or, or even uh, I've even seen it in short-term drug use, alters the brain to the extent that uh, the hallucinations start, uh, there is no Ability to tell a person that that they're not really experiencing what they think is going on The hallucinations are entirely real and all-consuming and you'll do anything to protect yourself And it sounds like that's that's where you were
2: uh, That's exactly right as a matter of fact, I didn't trust anyone at that point so there wasn't anyone that was going to be talking to me and uh, You know, it's just when I look back at it now It's just you know, that's not something I would normally have ever done um, you know, in that 48 hours, I I I, uh, I came, I um, I caught five uh, first-degree um, attempted murder charges. I caught an uh, armed uh, carjacking charge and an armed home invasion charge, and um, you know I was in serious trouble. Uh, you know that was I'd never been in trouble like that, and instantly, you know, I had first I had seven uh, first-degree capital charges against me, and I was in trouble.
1: Absolutely. That's pretty startling in comparison to all the other charges you talked about being, you know, part of just going along with drug use and pick yourself up and keep going. It wasn't a chance to keep going this time. No. Clarity returned at some point uh, for you, I'm assuming.
2: Uh, Well, um, I got caught. Uh, Clearly, I got caught. I got caught during the carjacking episode and because I was, uh, you know, tried to uh, wreck into the cop cars and get away and stuff. They were extremely heavy-handed. Plus, you know, I was armed. I was armed with a a hand grenade. I had a knife. I had a blowtorch. Um, And so they were heavy-handed when they arrested me, and I went straight from the ground to the hospital. And I went from the hospital to an isolation um, cell in the county jail, and, you know, it was it didn't take them long to figure out that there was something not right with me. I mean, I, w- I did not just, you know, recover the next day and think, oh, wow, you know, I, I can't believe I did this. I was still, um, you know, I was under that mental uh, fugue for for a long time after that. And um, when they racked up all the charges, they found out that I wasn't uh, competent to stand trial. So they sent me off to the Florida State Mental Hospital in Chattahoochee until such time that I was competent to come back to Sarasota, where I was living, to, to face those charges. So you know, I went from uh, that solitary uh, cell in the, in the jail to pretty much a solitary cell in a, in a pod up in, a, in, a, in the panhandle of, of Florida.
1: And did, um, obviously, psych meds and, and something to deal with the psychosis came into play in the mental... Ward, yes.
2: Um, now that's interesting. You would say that because over time, it took um, Florida had a, had a problem with bed space in the in the uh, in the institutions at that time. So I sat in a county jail for about six months, and there they wouldn't give me any kind of medicine or psych meds because they were afraid that it would um, counteract what what the Florida State Mental Hospital was going to want to give me. So they just kind of left me there in the cell. And, you know, my mind was clearing up for that six months, but by the time I got to the Florida State Mental Hospital, I was still paranoid, and I didn't trust any of those people. But I wasn't acting out violently or anything, and every week I would, I would go in front of what they called the uh, service team, which were five uh, psychiatric doctors, and they would tell me that, you know, we can give you we can prescribe you this stuff to, to help take the edge off and all of this, but I was resistant to it because I was afraid. I was honestly still afraid that whatever they gave me would turn me into an alien, which is kind of funny because up there I could have, had all, I could have been stoned all the time, but I was, still had that fear. And the thing was, was I was just there to become competent, to go to court, and usually a couple of things happens to people like me. We become competent. Uh, to go to court, we come back and we stand trial, and a couple of different things can happen. We're either just found guilty of our crimes and we go to prison, in which case I was looking at probably life in prison, because every one of my charges had a minimum of 10 years, or we're found not guilty by reason of insanity, at which time they send us back to the hospital to um, until such time that we have been rehabilitated to the point that we're not a threat to ourselves or to others.
1: Absolutely, and and that a lot of people don't realize um, or, or care, I guess, while we're while we're using that this is a possibility that that the mind does stop uh, processing the drugs that we're putting into it, and uh, some very severe. That's I believe the the most severe consequences I've heard of somebody facing um, in realizing that it's it's time to get help. When did clarity start to return for you then?
2: Um. I was, I was probably in about eight months. I was still in, my, in Chattahoochee. And, you know, it was really coming back slowly. I was still paranoid because, you know, at that point, my life wasn't my own anymore. I, I, I didn't have the ability to, you know, defend myself or anything as far as legal went. I was assigned a caseworker in Florida. It's the Department of Children and Families that takes care of people that, are, that have committed um, crimes like that. See, I was really lucky. Because I was on the forty-eight hour crime spree, um, it was really hot at that time. And whenever they took me from the ground to the hospital, of course they did blood tests on me, and they didn't find anything in my system. You know, if I if they, the drugs that I had been on that had had wigged me out, um, they didn't show up on that. Had they done that, you know, I really wouldn't have had a legal defense because committing a crime under the influence isn't a legal defense. So, they couldn't find anything in my blood work. So, they uh, had labeled me a, um, a sociopathic, bipolar, schizophrenic, which apparently sometimes comes on later in life. And, you know, I wasn't at the point to where I could tell I'm on drugs or anything. So, in their defense, you know, that, that's all they really had to go on is why would this guy at 45, who, you know, really hasn't been in any other trouble than just a couple of DUIs, you know, do something like this? So, in a, in a way, it was a real blessing that that you know that had happened to me because it put me in a position to where I could um, um, have a legal defense of not guilty by reason of insanity.
1: All right. And then they actually, at what point did you um, go to trial and, and be able to obviously, you're not in prison and, and you're not uh, dealing with the psychosis anymore. You've had a, a what 12 years of recovery.
2: Uh, it's going on eleven years. Yeah. Okay. Um, and actually, uh, I was I was in Chattahoochee up to about the year and a half mark of my incarceration, and that's when they decided that I was competent enough to go back to Sarasota to trial. So they sent me back to Sarasota, and I sat in uh, in another cell there for a couple of months until I could get to trial. And the funny thing is, is that I had recovered so much, and that their psych evaluations. Um, had been so well. It was the first time in almost uh, 35 years that I hadn't done drugs, uh, some kind of drug on a daily basis. And you know, my, I was getting pretty clear, and, and uh, they had decided that, um, you know, I, that, you know, I was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and that I would be put on a conditional release, and instead of having to go back to the institution, I was able to go home, but I was on a conditional release that was very restrictive for the next four years because my crimes were so violent.
1: All right. Well, we actually are getting close to the end of the show. I would love to have you back tomorrow and be able to share the rest of your story. It's quite a bit on outside of the norm that we've heard. Would you be able to come back tomorrow? Sure. That would be fine. Okay. The people that are out there listening right now, um, a lot of them are experiencing the you know, the working in the restaurants, all of the things that you've mentioned about being caught up in, in a lot of the uh, the cycles of addiction and, and they don't quite have the, the courage yet to reach out and get any help. Is there something that you could offer them for hope that would stop those patterns and, and give them the courage long before the length of time it took you to be able to?
2: Well, you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing. For one, you've got to really want to you know, until I really wanted to. It was the result of this episode that gave me the motivation to really want to be different. Um, and once, once I decided that, and there are a lot of people that, are, that have decided that that just don't know what to do, um, you know, I would suggest uh, to go to an AA meeting or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And just You know, you can go on the Internet. You can use the telephone. There's a whole lot of resources that we have today that, that for people that are willing to help us you know be better and to recover and stuff and you know relapse isn't part of my story so I've always believed that you know if you're really motivated you know you don't ever have to be like that again
1: Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. And we will have you on on, uh, the show tomorrow and be able to finish your story. And uh, Very intriguing and very powerful in how far addiction can actually take us. Uh, For those that are looking for help, we do have that confidential number. It's 877-309-3635. And we are just believe radio. We're here nine hundred AM, the Talk of the Palm Beaches, Monday through Sunday, every day for you at three and also Long Island, New York at L I News Radio. We're just believe radio. If addiction is stealing your dreams, just believe there is another chance.